0: This is the BBC.
1: This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK.
0: Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. At five o'clock in the morning of the 13th of February 1692, the Macdonalds of Glencoe were massacred by the Scottish army. Three years later, a parliamentary commission branded the attack as murder under trust. The massacre was one consequence of the glorious revolution of 1688 and of the ongoing struggles for religious supremacy that had raged across England and Scotland for much of the 17th century. But even in this period of endemic violence, what happened at Glencoe stood out as an act of atrocious cruelty. The motives behind it encompass political power battles, military codes of obedience and, fatally, a missed deadline. With me to discuss the Glencoe Massacre, are Karen Bowie, a lecturer in Scottish history at the University of Glasgow, Daniel Saatchi, Professor of Early Modern History at the University of Manchester, and Murray Pittock, Bradley Professor of English Literature at the University of Glasgow. Murray Pittock, can you give us the outline of what happened so that listeners know what we're going for?
2: On the day itself... Uh, the Campbell of Glen Lyon, who was commanding the force in the Glen, the 120 men, two companies that had been billeted on the McDonald's, uh, and who had just received the previous day the order, which until that time he was ignorant of, to carry out the massacre under trust. His fellow, his fellow officer, Drummond, did have, have knowledge of the order earlier than that. Uh, attacked. At a, at a given signal, attacked uh, a number of houses up and down the Glen. They'd previously... They'd, they'd been noticed that they were arming by the McDonald's and, the, and um, they had said that they were off to pursue Glengarry, Ga- Glen who was also... MacDonald of Glengarry, who was also out. Then they sent clumps of soldiers back into the Glen. The McDonalds started to get nervous. Some of them were warned. Um, and the first killing was McKeon, the chief of uh, MacDonald of Glencoe, and uh, that after that, uh, they went up and down the glen, killing everybody under the age of 70. Uh, in fact, most of the casualties were women. Uh, quite a number of children were killed, including um, five-year-old five-year-olds uh, attending their um, uh, their ill ill father. Um, there, there was an attempt. To, there was going to be an attempt to close the glen from both ends um, by Hamilton coming down from. Fort William, Lieutenant Colonel Hamilton with 400 men he was driven back by a snowstorm so couldn't close the glen at one end and by um, Major Duncanson coming up from the south with two companies of, Argyle, of Argyles who didn't actually um, get through to close the glen from the other end either and the passes weren't, clo- weren't closed over the tops so in the end a lot of people got away a lot of McDonald's got away including uh, McKee, all of McKeon's sons but between 40 and 70 died the vast majority of whom were women and children. The official record, only 13 men who were the principal target actually were killed.
0: So it was a calculated act of mass murder, really, Yes. by Scottish troops billeted there. They'd been taking the hospitality of the McDonalds the night before. Almost all of them didn't know what was going to happen, didn't know what the order was, and the clan chief was the first to be shot, as I understand it, around yes. 5 o'clock in the morning, point blank, four bullets, as he was getting dressed, receiving, yeah. as he thought, guests, people who'd been staying with him. So those, that's the bare bones of it in 1692. Um, before we move on to unravel it, it's been just a few more headlines, if you don't mind, Murray. It's been seen as a consequence of a hostility between two clans, the Campbells and the Macdonalds. Um, can you talk to that?
2: I think that it's popularly seen as a a campbell macdonald conflict and has been mostly in the 19th and 20th centuries, but possibly that actually itself dates back to the 1690s because uh, John Campbell, Earl of Berdolban, was one of the first to be blamed for the massacre. And the massacre itself was, of course, carried out by Campbell of Glen Lyon, whose whose own lands had been raided by MacDonald of Glencoe in the preceding war in 1689. But... It is much more complicated than that. Uh, for one thing, uh, the McDonalds of Glencoe were being massacred because they were, they were Jacobites, they were supporters of the exiled Stuarts, and the Campbell, Campbells of Glen Lyon continued to support the exiled Stuarts themselves into the 1740s, unlike the main branch of Clan Campbell. And also, Glen Lyon himself was, as I mentioned in the first, uh, 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 the beginning of the program, Glen Lyon was actually um, ignorant of the order. The orders. The orders were created by uh, by, by King William, by um, Dalrymple, the future of Viscount Stair, um, by um, Le- Lieutenant Colonel Hamilton and Fort William, and executed principally, even more than by Glen Lyon, by an enthusiastic officer called Drummond on the ground. It's not a Campbell. It's not a Campbell Macdonald feud. It was painted as that from the beginning. It's been popularised as that, but it was never about that.
0: Karen uh, Bowie. Let's step back and trace how this happened. Starting, let's take it a bit further back, but not spend too much time on it. With the Revolution of 1688, called the Glorious Revolution because a blow was not struck. Well, not in England, but certainly in Scotland. King William and his wife Mary, the daughter of King James II, come across at the invitation of English aristocrats. James II, who tried to turn the country Catholic. This is this is. wafts away to France, they take over the government, then what happens?
1: Right, well the, the, the revolution is uh, sets up our Glencoe Massacre because it creates Jacobites um, and the revolution is very much about religion Jacobites
0: being followers it's who still have fol- an allegiance to James II
1: Yes, followers of James from Jacobus the Latin the Latin for James and The key thing about James is that, that he, is, he is a Catholic and the revolution happens because people believe that he is trying to reverse the Protestant Reformation in in his dominions and he's king of course of Scotland England and, and Ireland uh, So the Jacobites emerge in Scotland in response to the making of the revolution, and the revolution in, in Scotland has has two elements. Um, William and Mary are accepted as joint monarchs, but also there's a religious revolution in the Scottish Parliament, um, and the Episcopal Church that had been established under James is, begins to be taken apart, and a Presbyterian Church is, is clearly going to be established as a part of the revolution. So Jacobites emerge in Scotland because um, of three factors. Firstly, those who s- are royalists who support the notion of hereditary monarchy and the rights of the Stuarts to the to the throne. Um, Episcopalian Protestants who are very disturbed at the idea that this revolution is going to set up a Presbyterian church, and also Catholic- Catholicism. There's not many Catholics in Scotland at the time, but it's it's a factor in Scottish Jacobitism. Um, and so Scottish Jacobitism emerges mostly in the north of Scotland, and this is how we get the Highland Jacobitism um, as as a factor in, in the massacre. Uh, so the the revolution creates a, the Jacobite movement in Scotland, and we get armed action emerging in Scotland um, from the spring of
0: 1689. And when we're talking about the Highlands, nowadays we think of the Highlands as sparsely under, barely populated then there were 25-30% of the Scottish population, it was a hefty group of people up there um, they were known to be they were known to be great soldiers and so on, so we're talking about a force mm-hmm.
1: Yes, and so the Jacobite leader at the time is John Graham of Claverhouse, Viscount Dundee and he rides north as the convention in Scotland is is voting to give the crown to William and Mary and to move towards a Presbyterian settlement he is recruiting support in the North, and they are in arms against the government by July of one thousand six
0: hundred and eighty nine so they 're rising up against William and Mary pretty quickly dundee 's interesting because he leads them into a battle which he wins they say Jacobites win he is killed is his death is his death very significant, because they lose the next two battles badly.
1: It is. I mean, nominally they win that battle, but in losing Dundee, they lose a key leader, and it weakens the movement. And broadly speaking, the, the, the Jacobites in Scotland remain in arms, but it becomes clear that they're not going to restore James by themselves. And, and so they, they have further battles in 1689 and again in the spring of 1690, both of which they lose. And really, the Jacobites in Scotland need to wait and see what happens in an international context. There is a much bigger theatre of war in Ireland. There's an issue of what France is going to do to support James. So it is in the interest of the Jacobites in the north of Scotland to remain in arms and to not settle with the government while they wait and see what happens internationally. Let's
0: bring internationally in for a moment, and then we'll, get, we'll focus back on Glencoe. We have... William of Oran, the great Protestant leader of the north, the great Dutch uh, leader whose fleet swept up the Thames, who held off the French and so on, he comes. He's determined to stop France growing over there. He's got the Jacobites in Ireland, who are very powerful. He knows that he's got to do something about them, and he goes to face them up the great Battle of the Boyne in 1690 and the Siege of Limerick. So that's going on over there. But um, but Scotland is something uh, very very difficult. You've already hinted at the complications, religious divisions as well as political divisions. Were, did, was William ex- uh, excessively or rightly worried about this?
1: No, I, I, I think certainly that in the the broader context, international context, Jacobitism I- is an issue. Um, he's certainly worried about about um, the uh, the possibility of the French um, supporting. Uh, sorry, William's concerned about the French supporting James in in the the theatre in in Ireland. Um, In terms of Scotland in particular, the Jacobite forces are, as I said, are not going to restore James by themselves, but he needs to settle the war in the Highlands. And this is how we come on to the massacre, is that they need to pacify the Highlands. By the time we get uh, through the Treaty of Limerick, The theatre of war is moving to the continent and William is at war with France in Flanders and he needs to bring troops through from Scotland to Flanders and so they need to settle the war in Scotland.
0: Daniel Sechi, can we go further into William's strategy here then? He's faced with this, he's got problems in Ireland, he's got problems in Scotland and that problem is because he wants to get those men, those armies back to take on what he considers the great threat which is the threat of a bigger, growing uh, and dominating France can you tell us how you went about those three problems Ireland, Scotland and France
3: Well, France is obviously the the, the big issue as far as he's concerned in fact the Grand Alliance which he is the um, premier military commander uh, for in Flanders uh, is about containing France And the Grand Alliance being the Grand Alliance is the um, Austrian and Spanish Habsburgs the Netherlands, various German princes, um, and uh, after the revolution in the British Isles, the, uh, the kingdoms uh, of England, Scotland and Ireland. Um, and as far as William's concerned, uh, anything uh, that is going on in the British Isles is a distraction from the main game. Uh, he is set on finally bringing France to book, humbling France. There's a great irony there, Because, in fact, by 1688, France uh, was a sated power um, and uh, effectively stumbles into the war that breaks out with full force in the winter of 1688-9 because of Louis XIV's miscalculations and ineptitude. He doesn't want war, but uh, ends up uh, by attempting to um, bully his way out of Having to fight, getting the war that he feared, and William um, is uh, following up on that and is determined to try and break French power once and for all. So then he
0: turns. He thought he, in in the British Isles context, he starts in Ireland. That's why is that the real problem as because, he sees it? Then
3: uh, because the war in Ireland is is very much uh, bigger. And the majority of the population in Ireland, indeed, one may say, the overwhelming majority of the population, are, are and remain supporters of James the Second. Um,
0: they regard him in some ways as their king, because the Irish provided the kings to Scotland, and he was a Stuart, and there's that there's that loop as well isn't there, there is
3: that loop um, but uh, the clearest affinity um, between the Irish population and James II is his Catholicism, and the fact that the Jacobite regime in Ireland had been uh, pretty Uh, pretty good for the Catholics of Ireland. They'd been uh, reintroduced into the army, into the administration. The Catholic Church was operating pretty openly, um, despite the established church remaining the Protestant Church of Ireland. The other problem um, for for William is that if he does not deal with Ireland, uh, Ireland is very clearly uh, a possible stepping stone back into England for James, uh, a launching platform for a, a, a full-scale French expedition. In fact,
0: the French kept going there to help the Irish into uh, small, small detachments, uh, insufficient, uh, but, insufficient. But, um, but, uh, but indicative. Some, yeah. yes. And there was the Battle of the Boyne. Then he took him on sixteen ninety. That was in William's term, a famous victory.
3: It, it was a famous victory. It was a famous victory um, in in terms of seeing James off as well. Um, James effectively flees Ireland straight after the battle. Um, the, the Battle of the Boyne, though, very f- is very far from the end of it really? um, because William fails uh, uh, to take uh, Limerick in the first siege of Limerick in 1690, which means that the whole of the west of Ireland um, is, is still to be conquered um, uh, after William's left. Um, and the, all the resources that William has to commit to Ireland to do that are resources taken from Flanders.
0: But there is a siege of Limerick, there is a treaty, and that treaty is is, is a sort of honourable draw so he can start moving troops out. Not honourable draw, where did I use the word honourable? A draw.
3: A draw. Um, yes, it's it, tactically it's a draw, strategically it's a win for William. Um, it, it actually shows quite how desperate William was to end the war, uh, in all, indeed all the fighting in the British Isles, that he was willing to allow the evacuation of the colonel um, of, the, uh, of the Irish brigades to, uh, to, to France. In other words, the Jacobite army in Ireland is evacuated to France where it's reorganised and eventually becomes a kind of elite corps within the French army.
0: Right, let's get uh, back to Scotland now, Murray uh, and concentrate on, on, on home into Glencoe. William has made his mark in Ireland the Scots are still uh, at unrest uh, he's, he turns to deal with the Scots, so let's start homing on they, these troublesome persons are holding him back, how does he dive into that, what's his focus there?
2: Well he, he, uh, he largely works through intermediaries and uh, the, the, the story of Glencoe is the story of the struggle between two of those intermediaries um, Dalrymple who is the Joint Secretary of State for Scotland. And a Scot. And a Scot. Becomes the Earl of Starr. Uh, uh, Indeed so. And Bradalban, the Earl of Bradalban, who is another Scot. Um, And Bradalban agrees with the remaining Jacobite leaders, or most nearly all of them, to come into the king's peace in the summer of 1691 before Limerick in return for large sums of money. It's about 12,000 sterling is the total. Um, In those days, is it possible to translate it? It's possible to translate it, and it's probably it's about probably about 1.5 million, but the purchasing power is much greater because of the cost of labour. I mean, that's, the, that's the overall inflationary aspect, but it would effectively be more than that. Um, but uh, two things happen. One, there's a delay for Bridalbin goes down south to get the money. There's a delay in getting the money, and um, uh, 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 Bridalban's opponents in Scotland offer the Jacobite leaders more, and the Jacobite leaders therefore don't submit because they're holding out for more, but the trick is that they're offering them more in order to actually ensure that they don't come into the king's peace and to destroy them. So we're we're looking at bribery,
0: Mm. and and we're looking at these Jacobites in the Highland, the clans, are playing for advantage. Are they just playing for advantage, Uh, Cairn? They are playing for advantage, and they're also uh, committed to the idea of overthrowing William and Mary and bringing James II back to the throne.
1: Yes, um, I think it's important to recognize that the failure of the pacification reflects the the conflict within the this actual revolution government at the time, as well as issues with, with the so clans. So they pa- they've
0: tried to go to pacify yeah. the Highlands yeah, Yes, So, so, and so
1: Dal- Dalrymple and Verdalben have, have Can negotiated... Can you just sort of talk to, to I don't
0: like interrupting. I, I would like pe- people to know a little more about Sir John Dalrymple.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, Sir John Dalrymple had been... Lord Advocate under James the Seventh in Scotland. And he supported the revolution, went down to London, very much impressed himself on William, and William appoints him as Lord Advocate again. And um, I mentioned that there was this Presbyterian revolution in Scotland, and so the revolution government is split between Presbyterians and more moderate Episcopalians who accept the revolution, and Dalrymple is, is on this more Episcopalian side and the the Presbyterians are appalled that he is in office under this revolution regime.
0: And he's very anti-Highlander. Why is he so anti-Highlander?
1: Well, having been Lord Advocate for a number of years, he's been dealing with some of the justice issues coming out of the Highlands, but he shares a a very general prejudice in the lowlands towards the Highlanders. They're considered uncivilized barbarians, and that, in general, severe measures are needed to deal with them. It's It's a very negative attitude that he and many others hold towards the Highlands.
0: Daniel, so the Episcopalians they are given, in a sense, royal authority through Dalrymple, who his his influence on or his, co- his closeness to William. They they, but the authority is to make peace with the Highlands, as, as 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 Murray said, which failed. Um, can you develop that a little? Well, the peace um,
3: pacification, the pacification, Murray it? It does. Sort of fail but it also kind of succeeds in the sense that um, there is a kind of settling down um, the level of violence diminishes there is a, um, a a will to end it on the part of both the um, uh, the government and uh, of of the Highlanders there are Manufactured incidents, uh, which arise out of the context of Scottish politics, which um, well, which Karen just referred to, uh, and there are um, some lawless groups on the fringes of the of the Highland War, who um, are essentially have essentially used the war as simply as an excuse to raid, and they continue to raid. So, uh, though there are Incidents, one might say, the, the pacification does have more depth than at first sight um, one might think.
0: So, Murray, just to come back to what you were saying earlier for a moment, are, are we sitting in London and in Edinburgh? Are we? Is William sitting in London uh, with uh, Dalrymple there? And Dalrymple, sometimes in Edinburgh, saying, What am I to do with these troublesome people? There? They won't sign anything, they won't come to agreements, we can't trust them. uh, Is the irritation growing?
2: After Limerick, it most certainly intensifies, and at that stage, James, who's still thinking that he can launch a landing on the west coast of Scotland, hasn't given authority to the, the Jacobite leadership to submit, and that authority comes very late in the year. But so he's got
0: to give, the, yeah. it, it's quite important to get all this sorted out, sorry deal. it's pernickety but that's what history is sometimes, uh, not as pernickety as you really are, but still we'll keep, <laughs> uh, anyway we'll do our best, um, the, the Jacobites want to get the permission of James to submit to the deal being offered by William, and he takes a long time about it, uh, and then when he tries to get it to them, it's late, and so on and so forth. So there's that factor as well. He's there. We keep forgetting him. He's there, hovering around, a threat.
2: Yeah. Yes, he is.
3: To, to be fair, um, I think that James doesn't delay that long, he, um, and he has a good reason. The reason is the evacuation of the Jacobite Irish army. He's thinking that if it's in, in, in good fettle... He can just briefly land it in France, really load it on ships, and take it to the west take of Take it to the west.
2: I take it to the west of Scotland, exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah, there's another delay that that um, helps to sink this specification, which is uh, which, which is more unfortunate for Glencoe eventually, and that's that. Badalbin makes this deal on very generous terms, and then he heads down to London to get James's approval to make Sorry, mm-hmm. William's approval to make it happen, uh, to release the twelve thousand pounds and do the deal. And, uh, of course, William is away in Flanders on campaign, and so he decides to sail to Flanders to speak to him in person. And four days after he sails, permission from William arrives by letter to London, but he's already gone, and he doesn't come back until September. And it's in that time from July to September that the pacification begins to fall apart because the Presbyterian rivals to Dalrymple try to undo it. They don't want him to get credit for the pacification of the Highlands and they don't trust him. They, they, they think he and all his, his group are crypto Jacobites anyway and they don't think it's a real deal. They dangle alternative terms in front of the chiefs and the chiefs begin to lose faith in, in this deal and to step away from it.
0: But then an ultimatum comes. We're yeah. talking about 1891 as an ultimatum, Murray. And the thing is signed by the end of the year.
2: First January sixteen ninety two. Sign or or,
0: yeah. or, or we will we'll come and get you.
2: Yes, or or an example will be made. Mm. And uh, but the the thing about um, the Glencoe McDonalds, of course, is that they sign they sign late, but they attempt to sign within the deadline because they attempt to get the um, governor of Fort William, Colonel Hill to take the signature on the 31st of December, at which stage, he's not empowered to do. He's empowered to take the submissions by two weeks later, but he's not empowered at that point. So then they go in a chase round to get um, Campbell of Arkanglass to sign it at Inverrera, and in the end, it comes late to the council in Edinburgh. But it's very important to note that at that stage, quite a lot of other leaders haven't submitted. Glengarry hasn't effectively hasn't effectively submitted, um uh clan Ranald mcdonald's haven't effectively submitted the mcleans haven't effectively submitted and their people are negotiating with the mcleans about what they'll take to submit at the same time as the glencoe mcdonald's are being massacred under trust so we're not talking about any consistent policy we're talking about isolating a particular group who are small and relatively vulnerable and dealing with them in an exemplary fashion well, let's come to that now. But
0: but let's just mention the number of, of missed opportunities because people were in the wrong sort of place and it took, in one case, two months to get there and he needn't have gone there because the letter had come. In one case, going snowbound journeys from one Scottish Highland town to another Scottish Highland town, taking far too. It's, it's full of that sort of thing. we back to the... Now let's get to the, the McDonald's in Glencoe. There's two... There's two lots as the Glencoe and the Glengarry. The Glengarry... Glengarry? Glengarry and... Yeah, and they're very before. powerful. Mm-hmm. They've got a castle, they've got a lot of men. They mm-hmm. can put how many men? Have several hundred men to horse. They're, they're powerful people. The Glen, the, those in Glencoe aren't very powerful, aren't trusted, are, are relatively poor, and they become the target. Yeah. Now, Daniel, why do you think they were the target? Because of the fact that they were poor, and then because of the obvious fact that they were poor, and so.
3: Well, I think they're the target for two, um, uh, one might say, practical reasons. One is that they had not been very good vassals of the um, uh, Duke of Argyle, future Duke of Argyle, um, for some considerable time. They had been, uh, uh, as they say, contumacious vassals. Um, And the other is that Fort William is close by Glencoe. So uh, a raid out of Fort William... Uh, with part of the garrison was extremely feasible. Was it
0: one of those just to, to teach people a lesson by doing this with one lot? Was that the idea behind it? Well, if there was
2: an idea behind it, it was. Though I have to say from Fort William, also they could, they could have attacked Campbell of Eel easily. I think that the, the Glencoe Macdonalds are marginal. They've got a, the, because they're poor. They have they're, they're at the edge of the high they're at the edge of the Highlands and they have a lot of living by cattle raiding. They have a lawless reputation. They're small. They're vulnerable they're isolated, and critically also Glencoe can be sealed at both ends It's difficult to cross over the ma- the mountain passes at the top, and the idea was to massacre them in the glen and plug and plug the gaps everywhere so that there was no way out and to destroy them all, not just to kill the men but to destroy everybody. And that's how the order has transmuted itself by the sure. Because in some yeah. of the
0: notes I've read, it says every man under seventeen. In yep. some, it says everybody under 70. Yeah, Can't.
1: there's an important story here about the making of an atrocity. So which Be- was
0: it, man or everybody?
1: It's, it, the, it's the military instructions say to cut off the men. And they are military instructions aimed at, at combatants, at intransigent rebels. And it's meant to originally attack the men. But it's, there's a whole story of how it turns into an atrocity. First, Dalrymple writes covering letters which target Glencoe, and he says it would be good to wipe out this clan. And so he's already starting to push those instructions. In, so he in means a exterminate a lot. Mm. As he uses the word extirpate. And so we're starting to move towards a massacre. And then it's crucial how it moves through the chain of command in Scotland. It goes to the, the, the head of the army in Scotland, and he does not resist these orders. He agrees is this, this is Livingston. Livingston. Sir Thomas Livingston, commander in chief. And he agrees that severe measures are necessary with the Highlanders. Goes on to Fort William to Colonel Hill. He doesn't like the orders at all, but he's he's concerned about his job and he's prepared to obey goes to Lieutenant Colonel Hamilton, who actually creates the plan for the the attack.
0: Which is to put to billet them. Yes, and, and this is people. his...
1: Because his, um, they
0: can do that, because they haven't paid their taxes, so they can pay tax by putting up soldiers and feeding them. Yes, yes, quarter soldiers. Quarter yeah. soldiers, yes. Um,
1: and so he comes up with that idea, and this is where it's really becoming an atrocity, because it's quartered soldiers who are then going to attack without provocation. And then it comes down to Campbell of Glenline. He gets his orders at the last minute. He chooses to obey... And we, it's not until you get to the very bottom of the chain to some junior officers who, do, uh, who choose to resist the orders and who stand aside.
0: Two out of the four or five officers resist. They're yes. carted away, but they're, they're, they're exonerated, aren't they? They were. Uh, sorry, also, Daniel. Yes, mm-hmm. they, sorry. They were uh, please ultimately
3: please. exonerated by the,
0: um, by the commission. So let's say this chain of command is quite a long chain of command, mm-hmm. very clearly described by you there, and it went down and down and down and down the line and not resisted anywhere. We're talking about four or five Scottish soldiers d- uh, from Dalrymple, Sir John Dalrymple, right down to the man in the in, in Glencoe itself.
3: There is a certain amount of resistance. In not the, enough, sir. No, not enough, no, not by any means, but uh, Colonel Hill, the commander at um, Fort William, does procrastinate um, and it seems that he was trying to play for time, that the, hoping that the order would be cancelled, presumably.
0: So why are they? Dri- why do they feel driven through by it? And you've said Hill procrastinates. Let's assume the others had some had misgivings at this w- Never mind. Why? Wh- what was the force that drove it through man after man after man? And then these orders which he opened the day before when he said it said five o'clock tomorrow morning, kill everybody. It's-
2: it's the no. so, it's the it's the socialization of obeying orders and the fact I think that Hill was ageing and ineffective, that Hamilton was, uh, was ambitious, far more effective, and Hamilton had absolutely no scruples. Hamilton's the effective... Lieutenant-Colonel Hamilton, second-in-command at Fort William, is the effective man in charge, and he wants, the de- that he wants the deed done in the most savage and complete way possible. But I would say, to take it back up the chain, not to make it an officer's atrocity, that King William signs the orders which say extirpate... Which say extirpate. He signs Dalrymple's orders on, on extirpation. And Macaulay, of course, and William's been defended ever since by from deferred to Macaulay. Macaulay says he didn't know, you know, extirpat wasn't to be taken literally. It was a metaphor. But, you know, William knows fine well what it is. So we're ready. When we come to the orders at the top, we are talking not just about letters of fire and sword, about putting men to the sword. We are talking about getting rid of the clan. But the argument
0: there, as I understand it, there is an argument, Daniel, you put me right, please, that... He was thinking about this in combat, not in being billeted and
3: then turning in cold blood on your hosts. No, I don't think William was um, thinking about combat at all. Um, And I would see this as, in many ways, a structural um, event, in that uh, the career officers of Argyle's Regiment of Foot, um, who were in Fort William, billeted in Glencoe and moving in on the McDonald's of Glencoe Um, many of them um, literally saw their futures as being on the line Um, that if they did this and did this well they would please King William and assure their future career um, prospects it's very striking that uh, the letter to Glen Lyon telling him to do them to begin at five o'clock the next day, uh, warns him that you know he, he is um, bound to do it on his honor, and if he wishes to tend to his career, it's 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 pretty clear. Murray Pidick,
0: the massacre occurs. Mm. There seems to be there have been quite. A- they were not unused to massacres. There had been other massacres, the one in the uh, islands and so on. Not the highlands, the islands mm-hmm. and so on. But after a very, after a comparatively short time, it, 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 it assumes a unique position and there's an inquiry set up, which is, um, which is in one mm-hmm. way, is rather admirable that they set up an inquiry that quickly. So, given the violence of the time, and given the violence especially in the mm-hmm. highlands and, and the islands, um, what gave it the... Um, um, what, what, what characteristic did it have that 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 made it stand out as a particular event, particular savage event?
2: Well, I think that to this day, the commission of genocidal activities on the back of enjoying several days hospitality from the people you're about to murder is extremely unusual. But in, it had particular resonance in the Scottish culture of the day because of the traditions of hospitality. Which are were deeply uh, ingrained in Highland culture, and I think also Karen you've got you there are other levels to the extent uh, of the level to which it was an atrocity which would do with the relationship that the, the quartering soldiers actually expected in the glen on the back of the the set or the paying of taxes
1: yes it's it's partly the this cultural concept of hospitality, but it's also because they quartered soldiers for the payment of tax, they were treating the Mcdonald's as citizens. And then to turn around and attack them as rebels is a, is a betrayal of the trust that a citizen should be able to place in their state. So, so that's
0: where this great phrase, murder under
1: trust
3: yes, comes. So it's, yes, so it's
1: trust at all different levels. There's the notion of hospitality, but there's also the trust that a citizen should be able to place in, in the, their security with, with their state.
3: Can I reinforce what Karen and um, Murray have just said, particularly with, because th- those troops had been there for over two weeks. Crikey,
0: I didn't know that.
3: Um, they had been there for some time, uh, living alongside the McDonalds, playing they, cards, playing cards, drinking with them, uh, doing as much hunting as could be done in that time of uh, that time of year, and so on. So, I mean, it, it made it particularly pernicious and evil.
0: The inquiry is set up; they, they, they want to find who's responsible and to blame someone. Um, why? Karen, I suppose these. Why was Dalrymple not, as it were, quite soon held to be the most responsible person, or even William? Because it didn't go there, did it?
1: Yes. um, The. What's interesting about this is that people need to become aware of, of the massacre first, and so we get publications about the massacre, and, and people start to talk about it in Scotland. And there's
0: publications first in France, right? Yes, there? yes, so and we get a Jacobite back, report. Yeah, the Jacobite report in yes, France, yeah.
1: Yes, the Paris Gazette. Mm. And then we get a Scottish pamphlet um, at the end of 1692, an English pamphlet early 1693, and people are finally starting to talk about this. And so it comes up to the Scottish Parliament of 1693, and... Uh, and there is there is strong opposition to William in this parliament, and one of the things they do is demand an inquiry. And it's because they're outraged at what has happened, but there's also a political hate to be made. They want to, to attack Dalrymple in particular. So these are the Presbyterians trying to get this Episcopalian minister out of, of William's government. But William is very happy with Dalrymple, and he feels that his initial instructions were acceptable within the rules of war and that although they may have been interpreted badly, um, he's going to stand by Dalrymple. So there is this inquiry, but Dalrymple survives the inquiry.
0: In terms of the greater plan, Daniel, the greater plan of William to get forces from there on his side and to to stop them uh, bleeding his forces dry by having to send troops up to Scotland, how did that work out for him in his, let's call it, his greater plan?
3: Oh, as far as William's greater plan is concerned, um, it it works out... um, just fine, except that he didn't need to do the massacre of Glencoe. The, the Highland clans had had enough, and, what, and um, the McDonald's of Glencoe were within a day's march of Fort William, so as long as there was a garrison at Fort William, they were not going to be causing any more trouble. So it was all completely unnecessary. He could have withdrawn the troops without doing the massacre.
0: Was revealing, Murray, of a great uh, political miscalculation early on. People think this was a very stupid thing to do.
2: I think that there was, there was, there was huge well avulsion, a huge yeah, yeah, There was a huge revulsion of the atrocity and I think one of the interesting things about the inquiry into the atrocity is that, uh, is that uh, in, how seldom inquiries find those who are uh, actually culpable and how, how seldom cu- culpability is made to stick and of course uh, without suggesting their references elsewhere I think we might have seen inquiries since that might form that kind of uh, basis of interpretation, but it is uh, the, the the situation is fundamentally that it 's regarded as an atrocity it 's one of the Jacobite issues of complaint, but it is not a dominant theme really until the nineteenth century it 's the romanticization of Glencoe in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries that makes it a huge part of the story it 's just a part of the story until then. And a reason for discontent in the 1690s, and a lasting source of resentment. Before we get to the 19th century, which, in a couple of minutes, just let's pause at 1707,
0: the Union. Did Glencoe play a part, do you think in the union between England and Scotland 1707.
1: Yes, it, it, in terms of short-term significance, um, William faces this opposition from his 1693 Parliament. Again in 1695, there's a second inquiry, and um, he, he's, he's appalled at what these parliaments do. The 95 Parliament demands to see the inquiry report before it even goes to William. He considers that an affront. And so this difficulty he has with his parliaments is part of much broader difficulties he has for the entire decade. And by 1700, William has concluded that he would be better off without a Scottish parliament. And it becomes his settled policy. Partly
0: because of the, the, the irritation of Glencoe.
1: Yes, partly because of the parliamentary difficulties after Glencoe. Yeah, right. and, and then there's all sorts of other difficulties that he has as well. He concludes to get rid of the Scottish Parliament. He recommends to the English House of Lords in 1700 that they should consider a closer union. And who
0: pops up, Dalrymple as the Earl of Starr making spectacularly effective speeches. Yes, in, that in, in 1706,
1: yes. when the, mm. the Treaty of Union comes forward Anne has continued this policy. She's also committed to a union. Very complicated story of how the union happens, but this is a key thread through it, that the monarch wants it and secures it and Steyr argues for it.
0: Can we turn to... What Murray referred to, Daniel, and the romanticisation uh, and the uh, uh, of the massacre in the nineteenth century, uh, and how that played into the idea of Scottish history, of, as it were, almost Dalrymple, Redleby, and all those people, wiped away, and it became the English, <laughs> dreadful English king who had done this terrible thing. Right, nineteenth century.
3: Um, the nineteenth century is is the origin, in effect, of the. Uh, hi- uh, Highland heritage myth that I've uh, encountered most uh, spectacularly in the United States where um, the, the retelling of the story of Glencoe and the singing of um, um, very sad songs about it is a regular part of the Highland Games uh, milieu. Uh, they have taken the, the, the kind of sense of victimhood which is developed in the nineteenth century, um, to uh, to the very core of uh, the uh, of the Scottish exile identity that they that they are assuming um, in those circumstances. So
0: Glencoe has been part of the Scottish exile identity. What about the identity at home, Murray?
2: I think the, I think the identity at home uh, is very similar. Nineteenth and twentieth century, what happens is that uh, Glencoe becomes first of all. Uh, 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 in the Romanticism, it's a sublime landscape. S- sublime and savage, terrible things happen in terrible landscapes. This is a kind of the story of the Highlands in miniature that it's a, that it's a place of savagery <coughs> and loyalty and high passion because it's in a scenery of savagery and loyalty and high passion. And then it becomes a kind of, in a 19th century painting, it becomes a kind of forerunner of the clearances. That the Glencoe is a kind of Highland clearance before the Highland clearances happen. The destruction, oh, again, that, yes. yeah, the burning. The <laughs> <laughs> well, mixed responsibility for the Highland clearances, yes, I think, yes. but um, but certainly some Scots involved. But the burning, the burning of the houses, the driving away of the driving away of the livestock, all seems to, to be a kind of avatar, a, a forerunner of the subtle and clearances from 1794. And Glencoe becomes this 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 iconic moment, which defines the nature of Highland experience and the future of Highland experience. And that's when it truly becomes important, when it becomes visualised as landscape painting and landscape appreciation.
0: Karen, finally, that's ex- it's extraordinary the way these things do become... They have a particular mythical power which can't be gained, can it? That's
1: right. Uh, I think the, the, this murder under trust remains the core to this event that people think back to with horror. But but there are other contemporary parallels. I mean, there there is... What we have is a military exercise against rebels who are in a village setting. Um, and, and this is something that comes up in modern warfare all the time. And w- the euphemism we use now is collateral damage. So there are still modern um, echoes you know, of, of this event 300 years ago.
0: Well, thank you all very much. Thank you, Karen Bowie, Daniel Sechi, and marie Pittock. And next week we'll be talking about George Eliot's novel, Silas Marner. Thanks very much for listening.
2: If you've enjoyed this Radio 4 podcast, why not try others, such as Thinking Aloud, where Laurie Taylor discusses the latest social science research. To find out more, visit bbc.co.uk forward slash Radio 4.